Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places. Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your host, Sholly Pittman. I'm filling in today for Carousel Baird. I want to take you back to about 10 years ago. You walk into a convenience store and next to the cashier sit a bunch of colorful packets. They're labeled incense or potpourri, but they're anything but. They say they're not to be consumed, but that's their intended purpose. And they're another way to get high while avoiding showing up on a drug test. Whether or not they're legal to sell or use is unclear all the way up. Today, we're going to be talking about the complicated world of synthetic drugs and how a 1980s law called the Analog Act has been used to lock up manufacturers operating right out in the open. It's a part of the law that begs the question, do you have a right to know that something you're doing is illegal before you're arrested, charged, and sentenced? Joining me today is journalist Jordan S. Rubin. He's author of a new book called Bizarro, The Surreal Saga of America's Secret War on Synthetic Drugs and the Florida Kingpins It Captured. The book was published this spring from the University of California Press. Jordan Rubin covers the courts for MSNBC, where he writes their deadline legal blog and was previously a legal reporter for Bloomberg. And he's uniquely positioned to write about the war on drugs. He's a former prosecutor for the Manhattan District Attorney office where he worked in narcotics. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So at the start of this story are two men who are currently locked up, I believe, for distributing synthetic drugs they say they didn't know were illegal. The title of the book is Bizarro. That's one of these synthetic cannabinoids or spice products, also called K2, that they sold and were assured were illegal. So can you introduce us to the story of Burton Ritchie and Ben Galecki? Of course. So Burton Ritchie is a recovering addict who in the early 90s as a teenager and then into his early 20s, he started a chain of head shops in Florida, in Pensacola, called the Psychedelic Shack. And Burton really is a serial entrepreneur. He was in all kinds of businesses, seemingly anything that could make a buck. And then going into the 2000s, he wound up selling this stuff called Spice, which was seemingly legal in his store. And he realized that it was flying off the shelves. And he had the idea, being this entrepreneurial figure, that he could make it himself and then distribute it to other head shops like his across the country. And in the effort, he enlisted Ben Galecki, who he had crossed paths with back in the early 90s in Narcotics Anonymous, and they had stayed in touch over the years. And so these two people who had really gotten to know each other in the first instance, crossing paths in Narcotics Anonymous, wound up setting out and making what wound up being an incredibly lucrative synthetic drug business decades later. And of course, uh, you bring a lot of incredibly rich detail to the story of these two men as we uh, kind of walk along their path of being arrested and um, charged and and locked up. Um, But while they were working at this psychedelic shack, you also just talk about the attitude of this headshot. One of my favorite details is um, a police officer in Pensacola who borrowed bongs from the shop for anti-drug presentations. That's right. Doyle Gresham, just to kind of show Burton's mantra, which was don't fight City Hall was one of his themes. And he had really what could be described as an open relationship with law enforcement. It was a head shop and it was something that was operating out in the open. He was paying taxes, was a member of the community like any other taxpaying business, whatever there was to think about what was being sold there. And that's one of the glaring examples that shows this is that he was helpful to and willing to sign out these bongs to help this cop put on dare presentations. He would call the cops when his own employees were doing drugs just to show that it wasn't some sort of 
uh, hippie-ish thing across the board as far as Burton's personal mentality. He was a businessman more than anything, and he was more than happy to comply with the laws as they were applicable. And so those are just a couple of examples just to give some background as to who this guy was and how he operated. So Richie and Galecki um, establish a company called ZenSense. Um, and this is the the kind of the heart of the the case that, that gets them later locked up because they're manufacturing synthetic cannabinoids. This is called spice or K2. This sort of thing is sold at the counter at a gas station where it feels sort of in the gray legal gray area of legality. Um, tell us about this company and how it's established and how they really set up their manufacturing. Right. So the way that spice is made basically by the distributors here in the U.S. is that you would order the main ingredient from China, and those are the synthetic cannabinoids. What would commonly be known as a fake weed, it's a little bit of a misnomer, but basically it's a synthetic version of the main ingredient that's in the natural cannabis that people might be familiar with. And so you can order these chemicals in bulk from China and basically apply them to a plant material, which itself wouldn't get you high if you smoked it and you mix it into there and you have this stuff called spice, which somewhat resembles weed, not really if you actually know what you're looking for, but that's how it partly came to be known as fake weed, including because a lot of people smoked it because it wouldn't pop on a drug test because the chemicals in these, synthet in these synthetic cannabinoids were always changing in response to government bans. And so as a result of prohibition, namely cannabis prohibition in the first instance, that's what created a market for this stuff. And then as the individual compounds would be banned, a new one would come onto the scene. So it's really just a rolling effect of prohibition that these arguably more dangerous substances would come onto the market in response to government bans, in the first instance, cannabis. And so they would distribute this to other head shops across the country. They're making a ton of money, millions of dollars. And going back to what we were talking about, for example, with Burton being open about working with the cops when laws apparently were broken or being more than willing to help them put on their presentations, they would lab test their products at a third party lab before they would be sent out, meaning they were checking to make sure that the chemicals inside of these synthetic cannabinoids were not on the list of scheduled substances, meaning the lists of substances that the government says, hey, these are the substances that are illegal. And again, they were paying taxes, they were operating in the open and attempting to comply with the law in a similar manner to which Burton ran the psychedelic shack for decades. And so he applied that mentality to their company's incense, but here now it's just on a nationwide scale and really making a ton of money while being drug dealers, though seemingly in line with the law, or at least not in clear violation of it. So these drugs, while they were lab tested and they were sold in shops all over the nation, um, including in Wisconsin, which we'll get to, um, they were regulated as incense or potpourri, right? Right. Well, so I'm glad you brought up the incense or potpourri. So that that was that was what they would call it. That's how it was marketed. The thing is, in the same shops that were selling this stuff you could buy what you actually know to be incense and potpourri much more cheaply than the spice that was marketed as incense or potpourri. So it was this thing that was really sort of a nod and a wink that no one actually took seriously. But the reason for that is because that enabled them to at least claim that they weren't selling a product for human consumption that otherwise would have to be regulated as such. And so given that Incense and potpourri are not things that people consume, but they are uh, incense anyway, something that is smoked. They could therefore get around the law, comply with the law, however you want to phrase it, not run afoul of the law by marketing them in that way. So that's why those became de facto industry terms in the spice industry. But no one's actually using them as incense or potpourri, right? Not that I'm aware of, in line with the, the libertarian spirit of the book. I, I suppose someone could have chosen to spend more money than they had to in order to buy this product that didn't really even do the thing that a cheaper product would have. But no, that <laughs> is not what I understood them to be. Okay. 
Well, I want to, we'll come back to Burton and Galecki's story because they're over the decades uh, or decade and uh, and change. Um, their story is really the central story of this book called Bizarro. But to understand the rest of their story, we need to talk about the analog act. And that's, that's the other character in the story, if you will. Uh, Burton and Galecki were prosecuted under something called the analog act. This is the Controlled Substance Analog Enforcement Act. Um, It was signed by Reagan and implemented to combat designer drugs. Tell us what the Analog Act is. The Analog Act, from law enforcement's view, it was made to solve the perceived problem of there being a loophole in the law. So under the Nixon-era Controlled Substances Act, the way that you know what's illegal is that there's a list of scheduled substances under the Controlled Substances Act. Now, you might never have seen this list, but you kind of grow up, you just know what's illegal, right? Cocaine, heroin, etc. But the reason that that's actually illegal is because there have been laws passed that say that. And if you wanted to, you could refer to a list of scheduled substances under the Controlled Substances Act. Now, what was happening is getting into the late 70s and into the early and mid 80s, you had these wily underground chemists who were looking at the list of controlled substances and saying, hmm, well, I could take this drug that's already on the list, tweak a molecule here or there, produce this drug that still gets people high but isn't illegal, and there you go. Everyone's happy and gets on with their day, right? Well, wrong from the government's standpoint because they don't like that state of affairs, and that's where the Analog Act comes in to try and close that perceived loophole from the government's view where people were, again, skirting around the law if you're looking at this from the standpoint of drug enforcement. And we were talking before the show, I had never heard of the Analog Act before I read this book. And I think a lot of folks don't know that this is on the books. Um, my impression of why it was was passed is, is exactly what you're outlining. It was, in my view, passed because of a realization from, from lawmakers that maybe chemists work faster than the government. Uh, drug enforcement officers are playing whack-a-mole. Does that sound like maybe part of the intent that's exactly the intent you could have heard those exact words come out of the the mouth of a politician in the mid 80s who was attempting to to pass this law so that's exactly the problem as stated at the time you quote one of the politicians who said something like if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck it's a duck meaning if it if it is sold like a drug acts like a drug Well, it's a drug, even if we didn't say that specific chemical substance. And that's kind of the heart, the meat of this issue is, is it illegal or is it legal if we don't um, come right out and say it because industry is working too fast? So um, let's actually let's talk about what the Analog Act actually says. It sets out three prongs for deciding if a drug is similar to a drug that's on the this, the list of substances that are illegal that are published on the Federal Register. Can you talk, tell us about those three prongs? Yes. So the key phrase here is substantially similar. That's if you take no other phrase away from the Analog Act, that's the basic way to sum it up. And so substantially similar to what? The Analog Act says that a substance in order to be illegal needs to be, one, substantially similar in chemical structure to an already illegal substance, substantially similar in effect, or having a substantially similar effect being represented, representation of substantially similar effect. Now, there's a deep legal long-running arguments over how many of those factors need to be satisfied, but the bottom line is substantially similar structure and effect are what need to be proved in these cases. Yeah. But theoretically, you know, in the enforcement of this act, the government could ban an infinite number of substances if they can argue that they're substantially similar. That's a pretty loose way of defining a drug. Does that sound right? It does. And that was 
a good way to sum up a big part of the criticism. For one thing, it's not just that the law bans a potentially infinite number of substances, but it does so under a standard that is not scientific. If you read this law and you say, okay, substantially similar to a controlled substance and it has some other scientific type of jargon in there, you might think, oh, this is something that came from the lab and it came from the government, right? It came down from on high in the mountain. There must be something to this. But we learn, and I learned anyway, in reporting out the book, that this is not a scientific term at all. And the DEA's own chemists would go on to admit this, even though it was really pitched as a scientific enterprise by the Justice Department, which was effectively lobbying for the law in the mid-80s. This term is inherently vague. If you ask a scientist to say, is one substance substantially similar to another, they won't be able to give you a scientific answer. It's inherently subjective. So it does outlaw a potentially infinite number of substances and in a vague way at that. So it's kind of a double whammy in that respect. Yeah, you're kind of taking me back to when I attempted to learn organic chemistry and you learn that um, drugs can look very different and have the same effect. Do you know if chemists weighed in on the Analog Act when it was passed? So the American Chemical Society, this congressionally chartered group, did weigh in and they basically agreed with the government's, with the Justice Department's bill as it was trying to lobby to be passed. It did insist that it wanted to make sure that both substantially similar structure and effect were taken into account. But as for scientists in the DEA weighing in, basically the way that the Justice Department lobbied for it is that they sent out a top Justice Department lawyer to make the rounds in the congressional committees. And he said, basically, that this was something that came from the DEA as a scientific test. Now, I don't know which DEA chemist he exactly spoke to then. That's not clear from the record. But certainly the DEA chemists who have testified in court today, once the Analog Act has actually been put to the test, have disclaimed any argument that this is an inherently scientific test. So did scientists weigh in on it? Maybe. But it certainly is not a scientific test. And I don't think there's even a government scientist who's arguing that it is today. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're bringing up the DEA, right? Because the DEA is uh, the chemists there are deciding what substances are substantially similar to illegal drugs. And you write about uh, internal discord over at the DEA, um, especially between two divisions uh, called the Diversion Control and the Forensic Sciences divisions and deciding what to list as analogs of illegal substances. Can you talk about how that has played out and maybe been clarified, maybe not, um, over at the DEA? Right. So these two groups, diversion control and forensic sciences, one way to think of diversion control is that they were sort of the pro-law enforcement side that saw the problem as uh, a loophole in the law that was meant to be closed and that they wanted to help support prosecutions by helping prosecutors show that any substance that came off the street that wasn't scheduled could be argued to be substantially similar. That doesn't mean they always agreed, but they basically saw that as their goal to support prosecutions. On the other hand, the forensic sciences chemists who wound up weighing in on the Analog Act on the other side of it, they were more of what you might think of as kind of the actual scientists who are in labs examining drugs and substances with beakers and lab coats and all of that stuff. And so you had these two groups and it's it's somewhat of a caricature as overstated, but it's not so far off if you actually look into the disagreements that they had because DEA delegated the authority to diversion control, kind of the pro-cop scientists you could call them, to decide for the agency whether a substance could be an analog under the Analog Act or not, under this substantially similar standard. But as part of their internal process, they consulted with kind of the, the beaker and lab coat scientists over in forensic sciences just to get their input. And now the forensic sciences scientists didn't always agree. And that led to some serious internal disagreements, which weren't always shared with people who wound up being charged under the Analog Act, which wound up being a pretty big problem. 
It's 1226. You're listening to A Public Affair. I'm talking with journalist Jordan S. Rubin. He's author of a new book, Bizarro, the surreal saga of American secret war on synthetic drugs and the Florida kingpins it captured. If you have questions about the Analog Act, we want to hear them. I certainly had questions and had to go look it up. Uh, Do you have questions about how the government handles synthetic drugs now? What uh, spice could be considered now? Call us and ask our guest, Jordan S. Rubin, 608-256-2001 is the number to call. That's 608-256-2001. You can also reach out to us at A Public Affair on Facebook and at Wart Talk on Twitter. Um, We have about a half an hour left, so we want to hear those calls coming in uh, while we have this time with Jordan. Uh, Also a man, I will say, uh, who has been called subversive by the DEA. Jordan, you stuck that in your acknowledgments, but I saw that. Do you want to talk about that? I appreciate that that close read. And yes, yeah, so, you know, I was a prosecutor in a past life and I had worked closely with the DEA. I'm still friendly with a ton of people in, in law enforcement. I wasn't necessarily coming to the book from an anti-law enforcement standpoint, whatever that even might mean, but you get the picture. And, but one thing that was really a feature of my reporting on this issue over the years was how much the DEA would not engage with it at all. They didn't want to touch this subject with a 10-foot pole, so much so that the subversive comment that I wound up uh, putting into the acknowledgments just to have a little fun, because why not? Life is short. Um, This happened when I was reaching out to people within the DEA, the scientists, going back to this diversion control versus forensic sciences fracas that we were talking about just to try and get more intel into what happened and more insight because this wasn't a subject they were publicly sharing information about. And so after I reached out to one scientist in particular within the DEA, again, this was confidentially, I said, I'm looking to get more information about this. Instead of responding to me, they apparently decided to relay that to their public affairs person who then called me up in a huff, had his chest puffed out, I presume this was over the phone, and was basically trying to talk me out of pursuing this. He didn't say it that way, but really the only reasonable interpretation of the call was to try and intimidate me and try to say that this is something that I shouldn't be looking into. But of course, any journalist worth half of their salt would then be even more curious exactly even more (laughs) curious at the very least reaffirmed that i was fumbling in the dark but for something worthwhile and it was actually one of the strangest conversations that i've ever had in my life i actually couldn't believe that it was happening and i have a recording of it as well that i may play in a more public forum someday but this was really one of the I I just couldn't believe it I sat there kind of stunned afterward I I couldn't actually tell what the guy wanted from me it was almost like like maybe he wanted an apology for me to start looking into it It, I just it was just not a type of conversation that you could have scripted because I, I don't know what his intention would have been unless just to think that I was a a complete idiot, which I guess could could have been possible and still (laughs) might be possible. But I really, um, at least in this particular case, I would argue that that's not the case. Well, I appreciated that you uh, included or at least alluded to that in your in your acknowledgement section. Um, While we're talking about the DEA, one other character in this book, there's a whole cast um, and keeping them straight is that there are a bunch of people drawn into this um, very long, slow uh, legal process um, and appeals about uh, these two two um, manufacturers, these folks who manufactured Bizarro. Um, but one person that you center, his name's Arthur Barrier, Barrier. I'm not sure how to say his name, but he's an enforcement at enforcer at the DEA, a chemist at the DEA. Um, later, awkwardly arrested on criminal solicitation. Uh, but can you tell us about his his story? Right. So Arthur Barrier was in the forensic sciences part of the DEA, the ones that were more kind of the scientists as opposed to the pro law enforcement only diversion control side. And Barrier really became the top forensic expert in this specialized lab. And so 
This wasn't a job that Barrier asked for in terms of being involved in the Analog Act, but his role became, at the time when Spice was popular in the late 2000s and early 2010s, he was the one who, after diversion control, would formulate its theory that a certain unscheduled substance could be an analog. They would send it over to forensic sciences, where Arthur Barrier would be the one who would be tasked with essentially checking their homework. And it was just something he just didn't want to be involved with because he didn't respect the work of the chemists in diversion control and he just didn't really think they were serious people and so it was just not something that he wanted to waste his time with he wasn't necessarily he wasn't obviously some big pro drug person he was working for the dea but he just thought the whole thing was kind of stupid but nonetheless he did it because it was part of his job and he usually even found ways to agree with diversion controls conclusions that certain drugs could count as analogs. But there were times where he just felt forced to disagree based on this unscientific substantial similarity standard. And when he disagreed, it became a big problem. They even came to him and said, you're not being a team player. It was this really kind of epic clash that you wouldn't necessarily think of as happening among scientists within the DEA. And so Barrier, became this really controversial figure within the agency, not the least of which because he wound up being arrested for charges having nothing to do with drugs. But Barrier, once it was learned that he had this dissenting view within the DEA, he, he became the golden goose for any defendant who was charged under the Analog Act to hear about this. Because if you think about it, it's a government witness saying that the government's case against you is bogus it's the government witness saying the thing that prosecutors are saying is a drug is not actually an illegal drug and so that type of absurd situation would only be possible under such a vague law like the analog act but even here we see this really interesting application of it where you have this whistleblower chemist who essentially becomes a really in-demand defense witness until he has his own downfall yeah well I want to take it back to Burton Ritchie and Ben Galecki. We left off where they were manufacturing this product called Spice, uh, distributed all over the nation. Um, And one of their products was called Bizarro, which is the title of your book. Um, At this time, you mentioned that Spice was popular kind of late 2000s, early 2010s, and under, I think, increasing scrutiny from enforcement agencies. Um, And their warehouse was raided by the DEA, but not before they had questions about whether they were what they were doing was illegal. So can you take us back to um, kind of how this started to play out in the, the legal system? Sure. So in 2012, there was this raid called Operation Logjam. And ahead of that raid happening, Burton and Ben, their their business was headquartered in Pensacola, Florida, but they had set up this warehouse out in Vegas because they thought the product could dry more quickly in this desert-like atmosphere as opposed to in swampy Pensacola. And that was where it wound up getting raided in Logjam, along with businesses all across the country back in 2012. And so right after this happens, Burton, he gets on the phone with that cop who would borrow bongs from the psychedelic shack, Doyle Gresham, for dare presentations. And he said, I want you to put me in touch with the person who's in charge of the drug enforcement with the DEA. And so that happened. Burton wound up getting on the phone with Claude Cozy that night. Claude Cozy is another character in this saga who was the DEA agent who was, I think in retrospect, he would say unluckily on duty that night for how he wound up getting dragged into this. But that night, Burton, the guy whose drug warehouse was raided that day, had a phone conversation with Claude Cozy, the DEA agent, where Burton was explaining to this agent all of the compliance measures that they took in lab testing and all of that. And he invited the DEA agent to their Pensacola facility the next morning to give him a tour. And he would give him samples of the product, would watch people bagging up the product, safes where they stored it, wire receipts for how they got the synthetic cannabinoids from China. This all actually happened. This isn't just coming from Burton's mouth. This is from a phone call they had, which I've heard a recording of. This is corroborated by the police reports of Claude Cozy and conversations that I've had directly with him. And so that day, though, 
you would think that if a DEA agent goes into a drug facility and somehow gets a tour of it and gets samples, that there's people who are getting arrested that day, right? But that didn't happen here. No one got arrested because Burton told Cozy straight up, I'll leave this business if you tell us we're breaking the law. Cozy didn't do that. He said he couldn't interfere with their right to commerce. He took the samples. He went on with his day. They went on with their day. The samples wound up coming back as the non-controlled substance that they knew it was because, remember, they were lab testing this stuff at a third-party lab before sending it out across the country. And so they only wound up being arrested three years later after they had left the business and had seemingly left it in their rearview mirror. Right. So this isn't exactly typical behavior um, of folks who are running an illegal drug operation, right? Um, and you, if you thought you were running an illegal drug operation, you might not invite uh, the government down uh, for a tour. So they were charged under the Analog Act, which we kind of just laid out, this uh, federal law that says drugs that are substantially similar, um, whatever that means, uh, can also be, uh, you can be charged for, for having illegal drugs. Now, they were charged several times in three separate jurisdictions uh, wherever where these um, drugs were sold. Um, so I want to focus on the trial in Virginia, um, and a substantial amount of your book is about the kind of trial proceedings and the odd measures taking place even in that um, trial. So uh, first, let's talk about all of the the ways you could argue that um, Burton Ritchie and Ben Galecki maybe did not get their due diligence um, or the, really their day in court. Um, people were blocked from testifying. Um, there was evidence that wasn't really allowed to be introduced. Can you kind of walk us through how this might not have been quite a fair shake? Right. And, and it's not just a matter of opinion to say it wasn't a fair shake. A, an appeals court actually wound up agreeing and, and reversing one set of their convictions because of that. Now, maybe the main thing that I would focus on in terms of something that was unfair about their trial, and again, this is according to appeals court judges who overturned a first set of their convictions, was, remember, the chemist Arthur Barrier, the dissenting whistleblower from the DEA, the judge did not allow him to testify at Burton and Ben's trial. And just to emphasize what that means, it means there was a government witness who directly disagreed with the government's case, but the defense did not have that witness available to them to put on. And they were convicted in the absence of that. It was still even a close call that they were convicted, but they were not allowed to present that testimony, which obviously would have been helpful. That's why the government contested that testimony from being able to uh, be put on. They weren't allowed to call Claude Cozy, the DEA agent who toured the facility. Those are a couple of the main things that probably helped lead to their convictions there. There's no way to know for sure, but that's one of the reasons why there's scrutiny on appeal and an appeals court can look at that. Even then, it's rare to win a reversal on appeal, but that just shows how wrong that decision was by the judge to keep, especially that dissenting DEA chemist off the stand, which was just giving an opinion that would have directly contradicted the government's case and quite possibly have not led to their convictions in the first place. Did you attend this trial? I only attended the most recent trial in Vegas. Unfortunately, I didn't know about the story yet. Only I only learned about this after they had already been convicted in their Virginia trials. And this was back in 2018 when I got a hold of the story. And I believe their second Virginia trial where they were convicted was in 2017. So I got to see their Virginia appeal, but the only trial I was actually at was for part of the Vegas trial. Okay. Well, there's still a, an incredible amount of detail, um, so it feels like you attended. One of my... Uh, there Again, there's such rich detail that kind of proves that truth is a little bit stranger than fiction. Um, there was a line of questioning at one point in the trial about the sci-fi series Dune trying to be used as evidence by the prosecution. Can you walk us through that? 
I can. And just with the disclaimer that I, I did not, I was not read into the Dune universe going into this. And, <laughs> and I have a great respect for the people who are. And, and I'm, uh, I'm not scared of people who are, but I just want to say that going into it, that I don't want to mischaracterize anything <laughs> um, within that series that I uh, do have a lot of respect for. I did read some of the book just because of this, but I don't claim to be an expert on this. But anyways, Dune is the the famous uh, science fiction series, which has been turned into a couple of movies now, including a quite recent one, which hadn't come out yet, actually, by the time that it uh, came up in these in these trials. But so in, in Dune, there's this and this was from starting in the 1960s, I believe. So well before Spice uh, became a drug decades later, there's a substance in this fictional, fictional universe called Spice. And so that wound up kind of being part of the, the cult's phraseology within the spice universe when it became a drug and there's this phrase from the dune universe of he who controls the spice controls the universe the spice must flow etc things like that so you can see how phrases like that can kind of naturally fold themselves into something that winds up colloquially being thought of as uh, an american street drug and so uh, a trial and it just so happens that burton and Ben, too, they, they were both longtime comic book and, and sci-fi nerds, even before they got into any of this uh, spice business. So Burton was well familiar, in, in particular, with all of the Dune books. He had read either some or all of them. He was actually reading one of the books during the trial in between breaks and court proceedings. And so the prosecutor really tried to home in on this evidence uh, as it as it were, with texts between Burton and Ben using these terms from Dune. And so you had a, a prosecutor in this serious criminal case where decades in prison were at stake, actually questioning the, the defendant, trying to kind of make this association between the spice and this Dune universe and the defendant's, Burton's apparent uh, fondness of it with the fact that they are therefore these big bad uh, spice dealers. That doesn't obviously do anything to show why spices substantially similar to the already controlled compound JWH-18, just to show kind of how far off all of this stuff was from reality. But it was yeah. just one of many absurd moments in the case. Kind of a case where you're throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks when you're trying a case. Um, there, there were other oddities here. One, Another legal procedure I hadn't heard of before because I looked it up. It's not it's been banned in Wisconsin, but uh, the judge in the case, a, a jury, there was a hung jury in the first place. And then the, then the second go around, a judge ordered a jury that was hung to come to a decision. Um, and that's called an Allen charge, which, um, again, not used in Wisconsin, but apparently used here. Um, the product of this this trial was that they both re received decades long sentences that, of course, went through appeals. And meanwhile, um, they had other uh, cases pending. Uh, where? So you mentioned that you um, have attended their most recent trial. Where are Burton Ritchie and Ben Galecki now? And what? Wh how long? What are their sentences right now? So after they were convicted in their most recent trial in Vegas in in the summer of 2019, they were each sentenced to 20 years each under a kingpin drug law, which actually could have subjected them to life sentences. But the judge actually was against not only mandatory minimums, but actually against the Analog Act. He didn't directly say that, but some of his comments, which I listed in Bizarro, show to that effect. And I think if it wasn't for these mandatory minimums in that law, the judge probably would have given them sentences that would have had them out of prison right now. But nonetheless, they're still fighting on an appeal that's pending, if which in a decision that could come any day now. Um, but they're, they were sentenced to uh, and placed in a federal prison in Talladega. It, it's actually an interesting question of where are they right now, because they've both been there for a while. Um, one of them is in the process of, of being moved, and they both w might wind up being moved relatively soon. But in the most uh, recent past, they've been mainly in a federal prison in Talladega, where they were initially sent after their Virginia convictions. So it's been kind of a homecoming uh, of sorts for them, but they're in federal prison is the bottom line and possibly for another decade, roughly, if they don't win their appeal that could be decided any day. 
And it sounds like you've been in kind of open communication with them. Um, what, you know, how are they faring? Yeah, I have been in open communication with them. I definitely wouldn't have been able to write the book to the extent that I did and in the way that I did if it wasn't for that open communication. So I do owe a lot to them in sharing uh, their story and information with me and in a way that obviously whether I don't know if people know this but if, when you're incarcerated the authorities can monitor your communications and so that's not necessarily without risk but I think that owes to their position of not having anything to hide from their standpoint but I think they're faring today relatively well for their situation I do think that they're looking towards the future and that's not the case for everybody who's in prison they're on an appeal right now which they could win i don't know if they will win it but they could win it and that's not something that everyone can say either but i think that they see a, a life on the other end of this regardless of how this goes but they're basically on pins and needles waiting for that appellate decision that could come any day okay it's 1247. You're listening to A Public Affair. I'm your host, Shally Pittman. We're talking this hour with journalist Jordan S. Rubin. He's author of a new book, Bizarro, The Surreal Saga of America's Secret War on Synthetic Drugs and the Florida Kingpins It Captured. This is the story of two men who were prosecuted under the Analog Act. Their names are Burton Ritchie and Ben Galecki, and we've been referencing them this hour, who thought that what they were doing was legal. And it turns out that uh, the government government had a different idea of that. Uh, if you have questions more generally about the Analog Act, what the status of um, illegality for certain drugs is right now, call us, 608-256-2001. Uh, we're also on Facebook at A Public Affair or on Twitter at Wart Talk. Uh, we only have a couple more minutes, so definitely get those questions in if you have them. Um, Jordan, there is a Wisconsin connection in this book, and I, I want to be sensitive to the fact that, um, you know, these compounds, these synthetic drugs, um, do have consequences in some cases. Um, the Wisconsin connection is a head shop called Smoke Shop in Delavan, was raided by the DEA in 2012, and they had their assets seized. But that happened after a 27-year-old man passed after, I believe, consuming um, spice after consuming Bizarro. Um, can you can you talk maybe about this Wisconsin case and also maybe about some of the people who um, have had have died uh, after consuming kind of these these drugs? Right. So this is a it, it's not only a sensitive issue, but also a complicated one, because it, it, and I'm speaking in general, not even just with this Wisconsin case, but there's this notion in the law of causation, which when you talk about someone dying because of substance or because of an accident, even taking it outside of the criminal law context, you need to be able to show a direct connection between the two. And when it comes to some other drugs, it's pretty simple to draw that connection. For example, mm. something like uh, fentanyl and, and other opioids these days. It's pretty clear how those have led to way too many deaths. Um, and it's not really a close call. Obviously, you need to go forward and do an autopsy and whatever tests there are to confirm it. But when it comes to spice, some of these cases across the country and a couple mainly that I focus on in the book that led to lawsuits against Burton and Ben, it's there's no question that people have smoked spice and then died after but some of the complications in some of these stories are that the direct causation between the use of the drug and the death is not crystal clear for example i'll take us just out of wisconsin for a second and talk about this one case in oregon where a young man went into a head shop and he bought bizarro and then smoked it and that led to this really convoluted series of events where for lack of a better term he really just lost control of himself and then someone wound up calling the cops who wound up tasing and restraining him and he wound up dying after that and so in a situation like that just to take one example you can make a good argument that 
sure if he hadn't smoked spice in the first instance it might not have led to that chain of events that led him to die but there's that obvious intervening circumstance of the police involvement and the autopsy even reflected that so it's just to say it's it when it comes to spice again one of the the many odd things about it is that there isn't always this clear line that you might think of drugs necessarily directly leading to deaths even in the kind of effect of it it's in this gray area as well what is the status of um synthetic cannabinoids now right drug policy has changed a little bit um we now have the farm bill um which legalizes some forms of um cannabinoids uh cbd but we also have more legalization of weed which um uh, kind of maybe eliminates the spice market in those states. Can you talk about other analogs that have come a long way? You mentioned fentanyl. Are there fentanyl analogs now um, that are, where there's a market? What's the case now? Yes, I'd say fentanyl and related substances is probably the DEA's main focus these days, and you can can see why. There really haven't been many analog acts cases brought recently, whether against spice or, or any other drug, because really where this has shifted and the fentanyl is a good uh, example of that is the DEA has passed this law or the DEA has lobbied for this law, which has been in temporary effect. And it's actually is pending in Congress right now to try and make this temporary law permanent to call the Halt Fentanyl Act. What it does is it's in some ways a supercharged version of the Analog Act. Because remember, we were talking about the 1986 law. It has the requirement of both having a substantially similar structure and substantially similar effects. Now, that can be hard for prosecutors to carry that burden at trial. And I think that's part of the reason why we haven't seen as many Analog Act cases these days. But in this fentanyl law, the innovation there, you could call it, is that it only has the structural requirement there, and that's according to how the DEA wants to define it. And so what that means is that these substances that the DEA calls fentanyl-related substances, they're automatically put into Schedule One, which is the most restricted drug control, if they meet this structural criteria laid out by the DEA. And you might be listening to that and thinking, well, what's the problem with that? And one problem there is that a substance having a structural similarity to fentanyl or anything else does not necessarily mean it's going to have a similar effect. And so a function of that law is that it theoretically, at the very least, outlaws substances that not only aren't harmful, but could even be beneficial just because of complicated ways that chemicals work. And so it's a much more, it's, it, it's, very broad in the way that the Analog Act was, but in some ways it's even broader in that it's outlawing not only an infinite number of substances, but potentially subjecting people to prison time for substances that could even be helpful and, and therapeutic. So it's in some ways it's the same story. Again, it's not a new story necessarily. If you go back to the Analog Act, fentanyl was really one of the big problems then, and fentanyl analogs and similar substance to that that actually led to the passage of the Analog Act. So we have come full circle in a way, but the latest front, you could call it, is when it comes to these so-called fentanyl-related substances. Well, th thank you for giving that, that update. And um, <laughs> it's interesting how history repeats itself. Um, you know, I'm of two minds of this. Um, on the one hand, right, we uh, you could argue that the government has an interest in preventing the, the spread of similar drugs that it said are are illegal. But on the other hand, this seems like a really imperfect law, the Analog Act and its subsequent um, proposal um, to, to theoretically ban an infinite number of, of substances in chemistry. Um, you know, chemistry is complicated. You knock a hydrogen atom off and it becomes an entirely different molecule. So that's not quite how science works. Um, what what kind of personal conclusion have you? I know journalists don't usually give their personal opinions, but like what what parting words would you leave us with of how do we grapple with um, weighing these different interests? What's your solution? I used to spend a lot of time thinking about that when I was first looking at the analog act, because you have this kind of innate 
instinct to thinking, well, if there's a problem that you're calling out, then you need to propose a solution, right? But I think that in the vein of this story, which at bottom I think is about government power, if there is a problem with a law, it's not up to me to fix the government's problem. And so if there's a law that's unconstitutional, then it's unconstitutional. And then we bear the consequences of that for better or worse. And so that's my non-answer to the question, but it's a non-answer that I've arrived at after years of thinking about it. Yeah. All right. Well, um, so where can folks find your book? Uh, the author or the, the title of the book, again, is called Bizarro, The Serial Saga of America's Secret War on Synthetic Drugs and the Florida Kingpins It Captured. It was released in April from the University of California Press. Uh, where can folks find the book? Where can they stay up to date on? Um, have you been are, are you still writing about this or um, is that up to local reporters? <laughs> Uh, so, so I have a, a recent article actually up on MSNBC.com about this fentanyl-related substances bill, uh, and I will be writing about it in some fashion when we get the appellate decision in Burton and Ben's case. In terms of finding the book, you can easily find it at my website, jordanrubin.net. It's at all the big booksellers online. Go into your local bookseller. If they don't have it, I would encourage you to make a huge scene and start screaming about it until they <laughs> please don't uh, do that. <laughs> present the book to you uh, just for the purposes of getting the word out. Don't get in trouble. Um, this is not legal advice. Uh, <laughs> it will not be able to bail you out, unfortunately, but I would appreciate your enthusiasm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for this incredibly rich um, reporting in in this book. It's all you know, it's only without the notes. It's only about 200 pages, but there is some really rich detail in it. And we definitely did not get to all of the all of the drama. Uh, is there anything else that I didn't ask today that you want to leave listeners with? You did a perfect job. There's nothing left. <laughs> OK. Sounds good. Well, um, I want to thank folks for listening. Uh, you have been listening to A Public Affair. Uh, we have been joined by journalist Jordan S. Rubin. He's author of this book. I'll say it one more time. It's called Bizarro, The Surreal Saga of America's Secret War on Synthetic Drugs and the Florida Kingpins It Captured. I'm your host, Sholly Pittman. I want to say uh, thank you to our producer, Jade Isiri Ramos, who was like, Sholly, no host is taking on this book. Can you do it? You'd really like this. This is all of your favorite things. It's legalese and it's drugs and, and miscarriages of justice. And Jade was right, of course. Um, I also want to thank our engineer, Jay Davis, and our receptionist, Mary Jo. Um, Letters and Politics is coming up next. You're listening to Community Radio, WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Carousel Baird, we'll see you next week. Have a great day, everybody. We come and listen and support it. Live and direct, we come and never be recorded with information that will never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and support it. Infocatastrophe.